Let me read from 1 Peter 5. Peter closes the letter by saying, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Through Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. What would you, um, what would you say to your friend? What would you say to your friend who you had led to Christ. Let's say that you have a friend and you've been spending time with him and you've been sharing about Jesus and you've been sharing about us as sinners and you've been sharing about faith in Christ and the forgiveness that brings. And that person, that friend, comes to Christ. And they're really excited about it. And you sit down with them over dinner and they say, I'm so excited about my new faith in Jesus. I can't wait to tell everybody because when I tell everybody, they're going to accept this gospel message. I can't wait to get out there and tell my, my parents, my friends, my, my family, my coworkers. I'm going to tell everybody about Jesus, and they're all going to accept this gospel message. And you're sitting over there at dinner, sipping your water. What, what would you say? What would you say to that person, to that friend that you had led to Christ? I love memes. Uh, some of you love memes, but I love this one. I saw this one yesterday. Your homie says, hey, man, I just got saved. Everything is going to be wonderful. Everyone is going to ex love and accept this gospel message. Me, dark and difficult times lie ahead. <laughs> and, and it's not that you would want them not to share the gospel. You would just want them to have the proper expectation of what happens when you do share the gospel. That some people will respond and be excited, like you're excited about the gospel, but many will push back. What would happen if that friend out, went out, let's just say you didn't say this, but that friend went out and they shared the gospel, and they came back a month later and they said, man, I'm discouraged. I mean, I love Jesus, but I'm not sure some, something's off, because I shared the gospel with 10 people, and like nine of them were resistant. Am I doing something wrong? I mean, I thought this was a story about 
the love of Jesus and people just responding to Christ like I did. What would you say to that person at that point, discouraged because they'd accepted Christ and, and yet they went out to share Christ and not many people responded? Well, part of the issue is that person doesn't understand what it means to be in Jesus's story of glory. See, the story of Christ is a story of glory, but we have to understand about when there is glory and when there is not. It is a glory story, but Peter tells us right from the get-go that he was a witness to both the sufferings of Jesus as well as being someone who's going to share in the glory. See, often we expect that glory to happen now. And when we get excited about Christ, we expect it to be glorious. People are going to respond and get excited. And that's true. But what's also true is people will push back against your faith. And that will bring suffering. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that when Christ returns, there will be glory and you and I will get to share in it. In fact, that's really the framework of what Peter's trying to say throughout his whole book. It's a glory story, but that glory is not now. You can expect hardship and pushback and suffering for your faith, but have hope because when Christ returns, he will make all things right and you will participate with him in glory. Peter says, I am a witness to the sufferings of Christ as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. And I love that it's Peter who is talking about this suffering now, glory later framework because he's the very one who fought Jesus when Jesus presented that to him. Jesus said, I will suffer. And Peter said, no, you won't. You're the king. This is all about glory now. And Jesus said, no, I'm here to suffer for sin. Glory comes later. I'm here to draw sinners to God. I'm here to reconcile the relationship between rebels and God the Father. Jesus came to bring us to God. He died on the cross as a substitute for us. The second person of the Trinity came to earth so that you and I would not be judged by the Father. You and I would not be separated eternally from God, but rather we would be restored to him. And Christ was put on the cross and suffered so that you and I can now be in relationship with God. But the suffering of Jesus was not the end of the story. He went to the cross, he went to the tomb, but then he came out of the tomb and was resurrected and then ascended into glory. See, it is a glory story, but we have to understand that the glory is not now, just like it wasn't at the cross for Christ, it was upon his resurrection. It was upon his ascension. And for us, the glory comes when Christ returns. So how do you walk through the Jesus story now? Understanding that glory isn't yet, it's coming. But how do you walk through when, I mean, let's be honest, who wants to walk through suffering and hardship and trials for the sake of Christ? That's difficult. It's hard. Many people walk away from Jesus because it just is too hard. So how do you walk through it? Well, Peter closes out the book by giving us two simple things. He says, listen, if you want to walk through this story now and participate in the glory story later, you must embrace humility and you must stand firm. 
You must embrace humility and you must stand firm. He starts off by talking to the elders. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, shepherd God's flock among you. He starts off from the get-go. The community of church in the wild has to be led by leaders who embrace humility. In fact, he doesn't even call them leaders. He just calls them shepherds. Shepherds or elders. When he says elders, he's not talking about people who are older than younger. He's talking about an office in the church, the office of elder. It's where we get the word Presbyterian. Uh, He's talking about the, the leaders who have been elected to lead the church in Asia Minor. And those leaders are responsible for preaching the word and and praying and and leading and shepherding. He's kind of talking to me. But I think it's also a great example of what it means to lead in the church. If you've got a ministry that you're leading and you're shepherding other people, this is a great example for you. Or if you're a shepherd in your home, this is a great example for you. It's interesting, though, that in the midst of this trial and hardship that this church in Asia Minor is going through, Peter doesn't say, you need dynamic leaders. You need amazing speakers. No, he says, you need shepherds. You need humble shepherds. And as you and I walk through a culture that's changing and becoming more resistant to Christianity, I think the temptation is always say, we've got to be more dynamic. We've got to be more amazing. But Peter's answer is humble leadership in the church. Humble leadership in the church. And he spells out what that looks like for us. In verse 2, he says that they lead not out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. In other words, shepherds shepherd sheep not because they have to, but because they delight in doing it. It's delight to them, not drudgery. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to shepherd God's sheep. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says to the Ephesians elders, be on your guard, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God. And here's why it's a privilege, which he purchased with his own blood. Being a shepherd is an unbelievable privilege in God's church because all the people you're shepherding have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are his. And for me and for anyone who is a shepherd in the church, it's an unbelievable responsibility and privilege that a sinner like me gets to shepherd sinners like you. In fact, when Peter's reinstated, Peter who's writing this letter, when he betrays Jesus and he's reinstated, Jesus points his repentance towards shepherding the sheep. In the midst of Peter's failure, Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, I do. And Jesus says, well, then feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Lord, I do love you. And Jesus says, well, shepherd my sheep. Peter, do you really love me? Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. It's an unbelievable privilege that we have to shepherd in the church as sinful people, shepherding other sinful people. And therefore, it's a delight. It's not drudgery. It's an honor. It's a privilege. 
We're to do it out of delight, not drudgery, but also eagerly, not to serve ourselves, but in order to sacrifice. In verse 2, Peter says to do this shepherding, not out of greed for money, but eagerly. You know, I hate to say it, but if you turn on the television, you will see people who are shepherding other people for dishonest gain. The purpose of being a pastor and a shepherd is not to get rich. And I hate that you see that everywhere because it turns people off to the church. The prosperity gospel is an evil that has made its way into the church, and it says if you love God, he will make you rich. But what ends up happening is pastors end up getting rich. That's evil. That is not what Peter's talking about. Peter is saying that you serve out of eagerness to, to shepherd the sheep, not because you get monetary value back from it. And in fact, if you're living your life as a pastor and your best life is now, you might be in trouble in the life to come. The purpose of shepherding the sheep is not about wealth. It's not about influence. It's not about power. It is about humble sacrifice. And dear Lord Jesus, help me to be a humble servant. Because we are called to not only do that, but to be examples rather than domineering. In verse 3, Peter says, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And what Peter is saying is, don't say something without doing it, shepherds. Say and do. Shepherd the sheep, but be out in front of them, showing them and leading them where to go. Be an example for them. Be a humble shepherd. One of the things that I believe about raising up new shepherds in the congregation is that we look for people who are already shepherding rather than just appointing someone and say, okay, now you're a shepherd, even though you didn't do no shepherding before. We look for the people who are already leading others by example and shepherding them because they already get what Peter is calling us to do. They're already humble. They're already walking with people. And now make no mistake, can I be honest with you? Shepherds shepherd sheep and sometimes sheep bite. <laughs> now, I love shepherding you. And thankfully, none of you have really large teeth that chomp down. But, but some people would say, listen, what's in it for me? Because it's no joke being a pastor or being a leader in the church or shepherding other people, even in your home, it's no joke. What's in it for me? But Peter tells us, remember, the glory story is not now. The glory story is coming. And in verse 4, Peter says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. First of all, shepherds in the church are always underneath the chief shepherd. So I'm a sheep. I'm a sheep just like you. I'm one of Jesus' sheep. Jesus is my shepherd. And that keeps you humble because it's never about you. It's always about pointing people to Jesus. In fact, one of my friends when I was in Togo, another pastor said, he's been in ministry 20 years, and he said, more than ever, the phrase, the Lord is my shepherd, means so much more than it ever has to him. And I think as leaders, we grow not in independence from Jesus, but in dependence on him as our shepherd. And I pray that as I get older, I grow in my understanding of that as well. But for those of us that lead and shepherd, there is a reward a crown of glory, unfading. See, you could get money in this life. You could get wealth. You could get influence as a pastor in this life. 
but all that will fade away. But the rewards that Jesus gives do not fade. They are eternal. One of my spiritual heroes in Togo is this woman named Sister Therese. And Sister Therese worked with a denomination there in Togo and worked uh, caring for orphans in a home. And maybe like seven, ten years ago, the denomination decided they didn't like the way that this orphanage was going, and they basically yanked the support out so that Sister Therese could no longer pay to care for these orphans that she was caring for. But Sister Therese was a humble shepherd, and she cared about her sheep. And she said, I don't care if they don't support me. I'm not abandoning these kids. And she moved with much of the children to another, uh, to another part of the country. And uh, they found a place to stay. And the kids were sleeping on dirt floors. And as more and more people in the United States found out about Sister Therese, they financially supported her. But she's still living month to month. In fact, she came and asked us, can, can New City help out with, with supporting some of these kids? Because I don't. I'm not able to pay for them for the whole school year. And we said, I talked to a team here and said, yeah, we'll give her a little bit of money to pay and help out. But I love that she's bound herself to these children because she's their shepherd. She's not going anywhere. She's going to protect them. She's going to sleep on the floor with them. She is a humble leader and one of my heroes. She is a shepherd who embraces humility. But Peter also writes, not only for the shepherds to embrace humility, but also for the sheep to embrace humility. In verse 5, Peter writes, You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Be humble. When I moved to South Florida, someone told me that, listen, I, it's cool that you want to do racial reconciliation and cultural reconciliation, but you know where the hard place to do reconciliation is? Generational. And I've come to actually believe that. Because you see churches where it's all young people or all older people. Why? Well, pride on both sides. We don't think we need each other. But what Paul or Peter is saying here is that there's really a mutual humility. Leaders lead humbly and sheep follow in humility. You who are younger, be subject to the elders. But what often happens is young people say to the older people, look, you don't know my experience and you're in my way. And the older leaders would say, you have no life experience and you don't know the way. And then we go our own ways because there's tension and conflict and separation rather than humility. We really need each other. And Peter is telling us, look, young people follow the leaders because I'm calling them not to be tyrants, but to be humble shepherds. Young people, follow in humility, not in rebellion, but let the shepherds walk with you and guide you. Don't build up walls of pride. Embrace humility. Embrace humility. Peter writes, all of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. And that language, clothe yourself, it's like an intentional wrapping of a garment around you. See, humility doesn't come natural to us. Uh, what comes natural to us is me. But Peter's telling us, be intentional, wrap yourselves with humility. In fact, it's almost like servant language. It's almost like put on the apron of humility. Because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
And what so often happens with each other is when our pride gets in the way, we think that we're freed from each other, and now we're free to do what we want to do. But Peter says, watch out. (laughs) That's the very moment where you might find yourself in opposition to God because of your pride. Be prepared to be knocked down. I was watching a video over the weekend by a, a Christian woman named Rosaria Butterfield. And if you, get an, if you get a chance, read her book. It's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Amazing woman. But she was asked the question, what happens when you feel like the church doesn't quite appreciate you? And I thought, man, that's a good question. You know, that's a good question a lot of people struggle with. Instead of saying how the church needs to change, this is what she said. I'm not slow to speak. I'm quick to speak especially words that have swords attached to them, to proliferate between my brain, or seem to proliferate, proliferate between my brain and the tongue at a speed that is, it is appalling. My pride is going to kill me faster than anything else. And if I unleash it on everybody else instead of blessing my church, I am instead going to do them great harm. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not room for conversations about things. But what I loved about her answer was that she said, I need to change first. I need to embrace humility. I need to lower myself. I need to watch my response. I need to love everybody else because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, Peter writes, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. I've heard it said that grace rolls downhill. If you exalt yourself, grace cannot roll uphill to get to you. But if you come under God's gracious hand, you are in a perfect position of humility to receive the grace of God. You're not under God's thumb. You're under his strong, mighty hand. And so we're to come under God and and not exalt ourselves, but rather repent of our pride and resist sin and reject self-righteousness and return to trust under God's mighty hand. The amazing thing about our God is that we do that. We're in a perfect position to receive his grace. Many of us think that if we could only get free of our problems, then we would be in a state of glory. But when we humble ourselves under God, we find that he cares about our problems more than we do. And the grace we receive is a relationship with a God that knows us and our worries more than we do. And cares about them and cares about us more than we do. You think that your cares and worries are most significant, but what is more significant is the God who cares about your worries when you humble yourself under his mighty hand. Do you believe that today? God cares about your problems more than you do. Where else would you go? Where else would you go? So embrace humility and rest in your trials because when Christ returns, you will no longer be in a position of humility. You will be exalted with Christ. You will be in the presence of Jesus in glory. Embrace humility. But also stand firm. Stand firm. Peter, first of all, tells us to stand firm against the enemy. You and I, as people of Jesus, as church in the wild, we have an enemy. 
And Peter writes about this enemy when he says, Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. And Peter knows this firsthand because in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says to him, Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. And during that time, Peter fell. Now, a lot of people think, is the devil this guy that sits on your shoulder with a pitchfork? No, he's a real person. He is the enemy of God and Jesus, and he hates you, and he wants to destroy you and accuse you. His goal is to divide, deceive, discourage, destroy, and disfigure the image of God in you, and he's real. You know, as we look at everything that's happening in our country, as we look at everything that's happening in, um, is it Charlottesville? Yes, is that right? I was going to say Charlotte. I knew that wasn't right. As we look at everything that's happening in Charlottesville, do you not see that the devil is real? Listen, when people form based on a narrative that they are more human than other people, that is a narrative that is demonic. That is being devoured by hate and by anger and by self-righteousness. In fact, any narrative where you are elevated above other people and you are better than them because of your race or ethnicity, it's demonic. And as we look at movements like the alt-right, it's safe to say that they have been devoured by hatred and anger. And it is evil and it is the work of the enemy. Listen, he does not play fair. He is really interested in devouring you. When Virginia and I moved down here to South Florida to start this church, we thought we were ready for spiritual warfare. Because in in the last experience I had, we had been through many things in the church that we were in. We'd seen church splits. We'd seen and worked through ethnic tension. We'd seen leaders have moral failures and walk through that. We'd we'd been through so many different things. We thought, okay, it's going to be hard, but we're ready. After we had been in South Florida five months, we found ourselves both in a place of despair and depression before we'd even done anything with the church. Because the devil doesn't play fair. He's not interested in laying out his game plan for you and making sure that you're okay with it. And I'll never forget what my wife said to me. She said to me, I thought this would be hard in ways that we could bear. I thought this would be hard in ways that we were familiar with. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Peter tells us the strategy. And there's a lot of strategies you'll hear about spiritual warfare. And I think some of them are a little crazy at times. Because the strategy right here is pretty simple. Resist him, firm in the faith. Resist the devil firm in the faith. Now I love what it says here because Peter's been talking about how the culture might press in on you as a Christian and people might oppress you and people might come against you, but he doesn't say they're the enemy. He says that Satan is the enemy and you're to resist him. You're to love those and do good to those who oppress you and come against you, but yet you're to resist your true enemy Satan, the devil. 
In Ephesians 6, Paul writes that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in heaven. But the promise that enables us to resist is that Jesus has defeated Satan by his work on the cross, and one day, the head of the serpent will be crushed. In Romans 16, Paul writes, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And James writes in chapter 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And we must resist the temptations, the accusations, the divisions, the attempts to devour us. We must resist by watching and praying and standing firm in faith in Christ. Edmund Clowney says, the danger to the Christian is not that he is helpless before the devil. He is equipped with the whole armor of God. The shield of faith will extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. No, the danger to the Christian is that he will fail to resist, that he will not watch and pray, that he will not put on the whole armor of God and take the sword of the Spirit. Make no mistake, Jesus is more powerful than Satan, but Satan is still working, and you must resist. You must stand firm in the faith. You must watch and pray. A dear friend of mine who had had a very difficult childhood, and because of that difficult childhood, he really struggled with his own identity. And he, his wife um, said that at times, this, this man was contemplating killing himself. And he had very, a very difficult time sleeping. In fact, every night while he was, his family would rest and his children would rest, the attacks would begin. And he could not sleep. And he would just try and talk himself out of killing himself. And, and it was like he was doing battle with someone in the room who he couldn't see. And this happened night after night after night. And some pastors went to him and said, look, you you've got to expect that this is coming every night. You can't just try and go to sleep. You have to learn to resist and stand firm. You have to watch and pray. You have to tell yourself who you are in Christ. You need to get ready for battle every evening because Satan is not going to quit. So put on the whole armor of God. And he began to get ready every evening to spend the night in prayer, to tell himself who he was in Jesus Christ, to call out that the enemy has been defeated at the cross, and one day his head will be crushed. And as he began to resist the devil, the attacks and the thoughts and the, the sleepless nights began to cease, and he began to experience freedom. But only as he resisted. Only as he was watchful, only as he stood firm in Christ and claimed his identity. And see, that's the thing. I think that you and I sometimes think that we can only be at peace if the devil leaves us alone. But you and I need to learn how to have peace in the midst of those spiritual attacks. I mean, David writes in the Psalms, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Now, David doesn't see God in the valley of the shadow of death, but he's learned to practice the presence of God even though he's in the midst of a trial. And you and I need to learn the same thing in order that in the midst of the attacks, we might be able to walk in peace 
with God. So we stand firm against the attacks of the enemy, but we also stand together. We stand together, Peter says, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. In other words, one of the devil's ploys is to tell you that you're the only one. You're alone. And Peter says, no, 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 no. Believers throughout time and throughout history and throughout the world are undergoing these same types of things, and you're in solidarity with them. Can I be honest with you? One of the reasons that I love going to Togo is not so much because they need me, but because I need them. When I go there and I see what people are walking through and the trials and suffering that they're embracing in order to spread the gospel and seek God's kingdom, it changes me. And I see the sufferings that they're walking through, it changes me and I find solidarity with them. In fact, here's a picture, I showed this earlier in the video, but here's a picture of the graduates from the AMN Institute. Uh, some of these graduates, this is the third graduating class, but some of them are going to back to countries where it's hostile to Christianity. Some are going to cities in Togo that are primarily Muslim. Uh, some are going with no resources. There's one guy there who was trying to raise money just to get a motorbike so he could get around, but he was going whether he got the motorbike or not. When I see what the majority world is walking through, it actually encourages me because these people like me are united to Jesus Christ. And they're walking through his sufferings as now as well. Not expecting glory in this life, but glory in the life to come. And when I'm around them, it changes me. So stand firm together, but also stand firm in your real destiny. One of the errors I think that's being taught in the church today is what I'll call the gospel of self-fulfillment. The gospel of self-fulfillment. And the error is that, listen, God's goal in this life is to help you fulfill your earthly destiny. God's goal is to bring a change in your life or to help you accomplish all your worldly dreams. God's goal is to provide you with a soulmate or that dream job or that house or boat that you want or or bring self-fulfillment. Now pray for your soulmate. Pray that God brings them into your life. Pray for the job. Pray that God opens doors for you. But that's not the story. That's shrinking the story way down. That's looking for glory now rather than walking through suffering and looking to glory to come. Peter writes, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. See, most of us think that we're in like the Rocky story. You know, Rocky Balboa, which is like, you got haters, but if you work hard, you'll make it. And praise God if you make it by working hard and you overcome your haters. But that is not the biblical story. The biblical story is this is hard as a Christian, but glory is coming, and one day you will be with Jesus Christ for eternity in the renewal of all things. There will be no more suffering, no more haters. Jesus will wipe every tear from your eyes. He will restore all broken things. There will be no more evil. There will be no more oppression. There will be no more racial tension. Jesus will make all things new, and that is your destiny. The Jesus story is hardship as a Christian now, but glory with Christ for all of eternity. 
So look, even if your story isn't going well, you have to understand, if your story isn't going well right now, the last chapter is never trials, hardships, suffering. The last chapter is always eternal glory with Jesus. And that really gives you a freedom. Because look, sometimes we hold on to our stories instead of just letting it go and move on. But even if trials and hardships, even if you're cheated or oppressed, that's not the final story. Your final destiny is with Jesus Christ in the new city. And God himself will restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. Peter is telling us that God will complete his work in us. He will establish us on that path to glory. He will empower us and support us every step of the way because to God be dominion forever. See, God's in your story right now helping you get to the glory story in Jesus. And we're to stand firm, not only in our destiny, but in God's grace. Peter summarizes his whole letter by saying this, I have written to you briefly, we've been in it for 10 weeks, but Peter says briefly, in order to encourage you and to testify that this, everything I've told you, is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. See, the grace of God doesn't free us from suffering. It carries us through it. The grace of God doesn't help us regain cultural power. It helps us seek the kingdom even when we don't have cultural power. The grace of God doesn't always save us from fearful situations. Rather, it helps us stand firm in them. The grace of God doesn't guarantee us glory in this life, but it does guarantee that it will bring us to glory in the life to come. Embrace humility and stand firm. In Christ, you are the people of God. You are living stones. You have been bought by Jesus' blood. You are his, and God is using you in this world for his purposes. The church in the wild is God's plan A. There is no plan B. You have been filled by the Holy Spirit, and God is using you in whatever situation you are right now to represent him. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession. So do good, even when people do evil against you. Stand firm in the trials, and by God's grace, you will get to glory with Jesus Christ. You are, in fact, in a glory story. Stand firm in the grace of God till Christ returns. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we trust you and we thank you and we thank you for your word. We ask that it would change us and give us boldness and grace and faith. We thank you that you have come down to sinners like us, both through the work of Christ and through the, the power of the Spirit in us. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us bold faith to embrace humility and stand firm. And all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand with me now?